If you have a copy of God's Word with you, I invite you to turn to the uh, book of 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to finish up chapter 3 and then cover all of chapter 4. Uh, we got a lot to cover in a little bit of time, uh, but I think we can do it. Uh, so uh, in the spirit of this morning with the Mr. Rogers theme, uh, I don't own a red cardigan, uh, plus it's too hot to be wearing that, and I don't have any air conditioning in my truck, uh, but I do have this red soft polo from Sam's Club that I have on tonight, and I have some nice, uh, some nice clean sneakers to wear, so I think I just would just, just keep the theme going from this morning as we talk about being a good neighbor and uh, put that on this, this evening. But uh, tonight we're going to be continuing our study in the book of 1 Timothy, like I said in, in, the, in chapter 3. Tonight the theme is, the title is, Who We Are and What We Do. Timothy, er, Paul has been writing to Timothy, encouraging him, uh, teaching him, instructing him in, in ways to best lead the church of Ephesus. Uh, they have been dealing with false doctrines and all kind of teachings, things that we have seen, some instructions about the church, and tonight that the same thing is true. There are some false teachings in the church and some things that uh, they need to be reminded of. So Paul writes to Timothy here, the main idea is that the church is God's household and is charged with living in accord with and upholding the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if you have your Bibles, 1 Timothy chapter 3. Let's start with verse 14, and then we'll go all the way through chapter 4. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaiming among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourselves for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For, for to this end we toll and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your truth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that we can gather together in your house as the family of God. And so, Father, we pray, Lord, that as we, as we discover, as we read, as we research your word tonight, Father, that you 
would speak to us. God, that we might receive the truth from your holy words tonight. Father, help us to see who we are. Help us to understand what we are to do as the family of God. Lord, we love you and we thank you, God, that you loved us so much that you sent Jesus, who left the throne room of heaven, to come down to earth, to live a sinless, perfect life, to die on the cross for our sins, and that he rose again, defeated sin and death and the grave, and he is seated at your right hand today. Thank you, Lord, that Jesus came down to be an example to show us what it means to look like, to show us who we are and what we are to be doing. Father, in your name we do pray. Amen. My family, who we are, the Yarbrough House, uh, there's four of us in our house. We live here in Lone Oak. Um, there's my wife and my two kids, Jackson and Margaret, and I guess you can include the dog as well in the family. She's been about 11 years with us now. Uh, we have a little miniature dachshund named Sadie. Uh, that's a little bit of who we are. Now, we love, uh, we love the Braves, and we love the Florida Gators. So we uh, chop for the Braves and chomp for the Gators. In fact, uh, this morning when, when Michael was mentioning about most people here are, are UK basketball fans, my son, this is a proud dad moment, my son elbowed me and looked at me and he goes, not us. And I said, that's right, son, not us. That's not who we are. That's not who we are. So even at six years old, he knows that that's not a lie either. He actually did that this morning. Um, that's who we are, a little about who we are. So what we do, we cheer for the Braves and the Gators. We, we enjoy certain things. We do things together as a family. We have certain rules in our household that we follow. We clean up every night. That's a struggle, but my wife and I have committed to making, teaching our children responsibility that you clean up your toys. And if they're left on the floor, then we'll just throw them away because obviously they're not important to you. Uh, we have bedtimes that we stick by. We have certain rules, amount of TV and things that they can watch. So we have certain rules under the Yarbrough household. Maybe you remember your parents, this is my house. These are my rules. If you don't like it, there's the door, right? So that's our house. That's a little bit of who we are, a very short glimpse. Now, who are we as a church? Well, we are Lone Oak First Baptist Church. We are part of the Western Union Baptist Association, the Kentucky Baptist Convention, and more broadly, the Southern Baptist Convention. And as part of that, what do we do as the church at Lone Oak First Baptist Church? Well, we exalt Christ, we make disciples, and we pass the torch. And we do that through various different ways, through children's ministry, student ministry, upward sports, choir, orchestra, men's and women's ministry, 55 plus, missions, all kind of different ministry that, that we have here at, at this church as the family of God here in Lone Oak. But globally, universally, we are all as believers, as people who are Christ followers, we are part of the family of God, right? We are part of God's family. And as such, we need to remember and we need to realize that God is in charge, that it's his house and we obey his roles and we behave a certain way. Paul is writing to Timothy, and here at the end of chapter 3, we come to this theme verse that really frames the entire letter, what Paul is striving to get Timothy to understand, and, and as a result, the church at Ephesus. Paul tells us exactly why he is writing. And in the process of doing so, he gives us a really a, a purpose statement for supporting the significance of the church and a summary of the supremacy of Christ. So let's, let's take a look. Let's take a look at the significance of who we are as the church. Paul lists three things, three significant descriptions of who we are as the church, as the family of God. And we see it here. We see it in verse 15. He says the household of God. That literally means like a family structure, a family organization. We are God's family. With three ways, three significant descriptions of who we are, 
Uh, number one, we are the expressions of God's family. We are the expression of God's family. We are his household. We're his family union, his children. I, I mentioned earlier my family and what, what we are, how we're made up. My, my wife, Michelle, my son, Jackson, my daughter, Margaret, and our little dog, Sadie. That's, that's who we are. I mentioned our rules and our orders that we have at our house. But we are an expression of God's family. When we go out and we interact with the world, we are a representation of God's family. I've told this story before a lot, but when I was a teenager and I would go somewhere, my dad would always remind me, son, you remember who you are and whose you are. I heard that all the time. Got sick of it, right? But I look back and I understand what my father was trying to tell me. When I go out into this world, I am representing the Yarbrough family. And don't do anything stupid. It causes to bring a bad name to our family name. And the same way is true with us as Christ followers. We are under God's family, God's rules. He has rules and orders and structures and a way for us to live as we go. So we are an expression of God's family. That is significant. The second place is we are the dwelling place of God's presence. We are the dwelling place of God's presence. Look look at uh, verse 15. According to verse 15, we are the church of the living God. The church of the living God. This sort of language would have taken the first century Jewish Christians in Ephesus and those familiar with the scripture back to the Old Testament. Back to the Old Testament where God dwelled in the tabernacle or the temple built by Solomon. God chose to dwell in a particular location. But now in the New Testament, he doesn't do that. Where does he dwell now? Well, in the New Testament, a change has come. There is no special city. There's no tabernacle. There's no temple where God dwells. Instead, where does God dwell? God dwells within us. God now dwells with his people. And Paul said to the church in Corinth, for we are the sanctuary of the living God. And to the church at Ephesus, he wrote, you also are being built together in God, for God's dwelling in the spirit. Did you catch that? We, we are now the dwelling place for the living God. And as the church, the corporate body of Christ followers, the household, the family of God, who we are, is the place where God lives and dwells and manifests his presence. So let us think about the implications for us on our weekly gatherings that we meet together. When we come together, it's important. How important is it that when we gather together every week? We are his house, worshiping in his presence, listening to his word, partaking in the elements of his table and so we should not forsake the gathering together because when we gather together the lord is with us so we gather together the church is not a building the church has never been about a a building you know this we are the family of god the church is the people the family of god we gather together when the old building burned down the church didn't, didn't quit the church was still the church because the people made up the church and the same is true together we are the family of god god dwells with us. That's the second significant thing. The third thing is we are the guardians of God's word. The guardians of God's word. That's exactly what Paul meant when he said we are the pillar and the foundation of the truth. You see there in verse 15, the pillar and the foundation, the buttress of the truth. Now during this time, the period, the church at Ephesus would have known about and would have been able to see the temple of Diana, or maybe you know it as the temple of Artemis in modern day Turkey today. Now it lays in ruins, but at the time, during this time when the Bible was, when this letter was written, it had a massive shining marble roof held high with 100 strong columns all around it, each measuring over 18 meters high. And that's the image that Paul is trying to urge Timothy for us to have of who we are as the guardians of the truth of God's word. 
As guardians of God's word, we are responsible for preserving it and proclaiming it. Like the columns of the temple, we lift high the truth of God's word. We lift high the truth of God's word, and holding God's word high also means that we don't hold other things high. We don't hold high like man's opinions, man's innovations, man's creativity, man's wisdoms, man's possessions. Instead, we lift up and we hold high one thing, the word of God, God's word. We say nothing is equal, nothing even comes close to the truth of God's word. In fact, do you, even, do you know why we have pulpits or why older churches way back in the day a long time ago, maybe they'd have a, a, a preaching pulpit up, up high? It's so that God's word would be literally higher than everyone else, that there would be such a high standard for God's word that we would visually see, physically see a representation of what we, the truth that we should look like in our life, that God's word should be higher than anything else, than anything or anyone else, that God's word is higher than anything else. And so we are guardians of that truth. We, we proclaim it and we, we tell of, the, of its greatness to everyone that we come in contact with. We preserve it and we proclaim we hold to there's no one like our God. And we hold high the truth of God's word. That's just a little bit about who we are. We are the expression of God's family. We are the dwelling place of God's presence and the guardians of God's word. And then Paul moves on to talk about the supremacy of Christ. And though it may seem a little out of place, it's really not. It's really not. Paul talks about the supremacy of Christ. He calls the mystery of godliness. Now, Paul uses the word mystery. He loves that word. He uses it all throughout the New Testament. In this letter, he uses it nine different times. To have godliness is to have a God consciousness, a God centeredness that permeates everything that you do. And after all, God, God dwells with us. We just saw that's who we are. We are God's dwelling place. We are his dwelling place. We are part of his house. So we should be following his rules and his orders. And that's what godliness is. Godliness is that we look more like Christ. And so in doing so, we, we represent Christ to the world. But what is this mystery? Whenever Paul mentions the word mystery in his letters, he's not talking about something that is unsolved or that is difficult to figure out. He's talking about something that was previously hidden for a time, but now it has been revealed in Christ Jesus. Paul desires that we act the right way in the household of God. It's not simply called a good behavior. Right? We're not just supposed to try and be good people. It's way more than that. It was a call to act in accordance with the truth of who Christ is and what he accomplished through his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. You see, if you have been saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ, you will live godly life. There will be a change in your life. And so Paul mentions here in verse 16, we confess is the mystery of godliness. We see here, really, it's, it's a hymn that was sung by the church in Paul's day. Well, look at this hymn, if you will. It, Paul it mentions this. It sets forth the core beliefs about Christ that we that need to operate in a believer's life. Look, it says, the manifested in the flesh. Well, that's a reference to the incarnation of the Son of God, vindicated in the Spirit. It means Jesus was declared by the Father as his beloved Son, empowered by the Spirit to perform supernatural works, and then raised from the dead. He was seen by angels, and that reminds us that heavenly beings attended Jesus at his birth, uh, his temptation, his resurrection, his ascension, signifying divine approval. He is preached among the nations, refers to the proclamation of the gospel to the whole world. Believed on in the world refers to the faith in Christ for forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And taken in glory refers to Christ's ascension into heaven. 
And Paul says here that Christ's supremacy is seen and made known for he was manifested in the flesh. We know what godliness is because Jesus came down to earth. He put on flesh and he showed us. He was verified for the spirit at his baptism. Remember in Matthew when the when, when Christ was baptized and, and the Lord uh, proclaimed that this was my son who I'm well pleased, he was praised among the heavens, proclaimed across the earth, and is the savior of the world. And Paul doesn't just tell us these things to simply proclaim Christ's greatness. He wants us to realize who we are. That Christ, that same Christ, the one who conquered sin, death, and the grave, lives within you lives within us. Jesus, the Son of God incarnate, the one who was verified by the Spirit, raised from the dead, praised among angels, proclaimed across the earth, believes on a Savior and crowned King over all the universe, lives in you. That is who we are. As the dwelling place of God, God dwells in us and Christ lives in us. His power is within us. There is nothing more, uh, godliness is nothing more than the overflow of Christ in you, as one commentator says. Godliness is simply that, the overflow of Christ in you. And when we as a church, as God's family, when we realize who we truly are, the gospel radically changes us. When we realize that Christ is within us, it changes the way we live and what we do as the church. So the second part, what we do, we just look at who we are here in these few verses of, of chapter 3. Now let's look at, at what we do as the church. These instructions Paul gives in chapter 4 really have a twofold application. Paul is talking to 1 Timothy as a pastor, but also uh, there are some instructions that comply to all members of the church. So what do we do? Uh, number one, we detect error in the church. We see this here in these first few verses uh, in this passage that there were people who were questioning the true teaching of the word. And they were spreading false teachings that did not derive from the word of God. And if you, we look back here at this glorious spiritual heritage about who Christ is. We see these things, and yet there are some who will still turn away from the faith. Turn away and led by false and insecure teachers. There, it's a, that's a deadly problem to have when you trade away the truth of who Christ is for a lie, something that just feeds um, what you want. Paul is concerned not just with the content of the false doctrine, but with the source Notice who, who he says it is from. He says it is from um, uh, demons, right? Paul claims that these false teaching comes from deceptive spirits and demons. In verse 3, we see what the false teaching was. See, they were forbidding marrying. Those who forbade marriage promote celibacy for anyone seeking a holy life. Paul reminds them that God created marriage and food, both of which are occasions for thanksgiving. Hey, they also say that they were teaching to abstain from foods. It's unknown exactly which kinds of food, but we do know that uh, perhaps there were some foods that they, uh, the people should avoid eating meats that were sacrificed to idols or uh, observe Jewish dietary laws. And these false teachers may have pressured believers in Ephesus to abstain from those types of food because of these issues. But Paul, praise the Lord, Paul condemns their teaching on theological grounds, amen? Uh, he argues that believers who give thanks to God are free to eat any kind of food since they acknowledge God as the creator and provider of every good thing. And in our household, we say praise the Lord for that we can eat the pork. We are people of bacon in my household. 
We love bacon. We put bacon on bacon in my house. In fact, one of my, my kids, their favorite meals is daddy's cheesy eggs and bacon. And more recently, they started putting the bacon on top of the eggs. I'm like, this is just bacon two ways here with eggs and cheese and by itself, right? Um, but we, we, uh, we detect error in the church. There are false teachings all of, we could go into all kind of ways and things of false teachings today in, in, in our time and our world, but we don't simply have enough time to go into all that tonight. But you have a good idea of some of the false teachings in our world. Anything that detracts from the truth of who God is, anything that goes against God's word, we're guardians of his truth. Remember who we are, that we are part of his family, that we are the dwelling place of God and we are the guardians of truth. And so we should be detecting error and calling it out. The second way is we declare the truth in the church. We declare the truth in the church. In verse 6, Paul said to Timothy, if you point these things out to the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. In other words, put truth before the church. Let it permeate, let it saturate the church. And Paul mentions a few ways to do this. Number one, teach with authority. Teach with authority. Timothy was young. Some scholars say probably about 30 years younger than Paul, but but Paul encourages Timothy to teach with authority, not to let anyone look down on you because you're young. You set an example, and you teach with authority. Uh, in verse 13, give attention to public reading, to exhorting and teaching. And in verse 16, pay close attention to your life and your teaching. Paul tells Timothy, hey, read the Bible, explain the Bible, exhort from the Bible, and teach the Bible. And the side note here, don't, don't mistake teaching the truth with authority with neglecting grace as well. In the hostile world that we live in, it's, it's easy for us to love that idea of teaching with authority and really kind of putting our finger in someone's face. Well, they won't hear our truth unless grace and kindness is felt. And sometimes that may take establishing relationships with people to know that you genuinely care about them. Hey, I want to share the truth with you as well. Not that we shy away from the truth. We don't shy away from it. But it's God's kindness that leads people to repentance. So we go and we love people. But we also, the loving thing to do is not to shy away from the truth, but to share the truth. And so truth, we teach with authority. The second way, we, we live with purity. Verse 12, Paul says here in verse 12, Let no one despise you for youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Speech, love, faith, and purity. Purity is not only about doctrine, but also about one's life, how we live. We are to be pure, and we are, we are pure because not of anything good we have done, but what Christ has done for us. We have been made pure, we have been washed clean by the blood of Jesus Christ, but we are to then live pure lives and set an example. Paul is instructing Timothy to embrace godliness, and part of living a pure life follows with with godliness he ties back to godliness what he mentions here remember who you are how do we live a godly life we we remember who we are that we are the dwelling place of god we have the power of christ within us and we reflect god to the world and the world may look down on you the world may look down on us the world may think that we are just a bunch of idiots for believing this book they may look down on us not because we're young the world may look down at us for many other ways because we believe this book. We believe this 2,000-plus-year-old book about a Jewish carpenter who claimed to be the savior of the world. But don't let them look down. Don't worry about that. Continue living your life. Continue living an example of godliness. Continue walking by faith. Continue live in purity. 
You see, if you are living with purity, if you are living a godly life, no one can refute your character. Jesus exemplified this perfectly because even great sinners at the time wanted to be around Jesus, and Jesus told them they were sinners. Jesus was a perfect example of grace and truth. Jesus didn't shy away from the truth. Jesus taught with authority, but Jesus lived a pure life, and people saw his character of who he was. He called them out on their sin, but they still loved being around Jesus. And do they want to be around us? Are we people who the world would want to be around? Because we're living pure lives, because we're embracing godliness, because our lives look more like Jesus. If they wanted to be around Jesus, they should want to be around us as well. Because our lives should be proclaiming the greatness of our God. We should be striving towards looking more and more like Jesus every day. I have a friend, his name's Gary, uh, who lives in downtown Nashville, and he works for a faith-based organization to do ministry uh, in apartment buildings. He lives in an apartment. He literally lives with them. This weekend, we had our senior trip with our seniors who just graduated high school, and, and Gary came over and spent a few hours with us. And part of what Gary does is Gary just, he lives amongst people. I, I forget the, the statistic that he told me, but an overwhelming majority of the people that live in his apartment building, some 300 people, the overwhelming majority do not attend church anywhere and do not claim to be followers of Christ. And the kind of people that live there, well, they would make you blush a little bit. The kind of conversations that Gary has, and Gary just does life with them. Gary interacts with them, but Gary lives a pure life. Gary lives uh, godliness. He embraces godliness. And I had Gary come in to talk to with our seniors about, hey, going into this world. And you can uh, live your life. You can live a godly life. And people may look down on you, but if you're living a, a pure life, and you're a person of integrity and convictions, and you're not uh, rude or a jerk about it, hey, people will, can still be friendly to you. And God has you there to embrace uh, holiness. God has you there to, to share and proclaim the truth of the gospel. And so Gary does this. He's a, an ex excellent example of someone who lives a pure, a pure life and godliness and who shares truth with grace. Finally, we see that we declare truth in the church by training for eternity, by training for eternity. Look back at verses 7 and 8 here. Verse 7 and 8. Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also the life to come. Train yourself in godliness. In our house, my son Jackson, uh, he's getting ready. He's training to take off his training wheels of his bicycle. So we've been working on that a little bit. He's a little hesitant. He's a little scared. We haven't actually got to taking the training wheels off yet, uh, but he's working on it. He's getting more comfortable with riding on his bike. But that's something that we are striving to. In my own life, I've had, I've had different uh, times in my life when I've trained for physical fitness to get in shape for things. And then that's good, and people love to train for, for bodily uh, purposes. But Paul says here, hey, while that's good and that's great and all, and there's scholars who believe that physical fitness was a big thing in that time, training for athletic games and stuff, that's beneficial. Paul says even greater than that, we need to be training for godliness, becoming more like God in our actions, our attitudes, our character, and our conduct. That should be our goal. That's what we should be training for. That's what we should be doing. 
our passion for, verse 8, our passion for and pursuit of spiritual growth should be greater than our drive to be physically fit. Our souls, watch this, our souls need a regular workout program, right? Our souls need a regular workout program. You don't become godly just by chance. When I was uh, losing a bunch of weight, I, I didn't just up and like just, it just happened. No, I, I trained for it. I had to get in shape. And we don't just become spiritual by chance. I, I heard one preacher say that you are as close to God as you want to be. Might have even been Dan Similar, this guy I heard of one time. He might have said that. You are as close to God as you want to be. And I think that's true. It's not for a lack of resources. We have God's word. We have access to the Father. We can go to him in prayer anytime we want. But we are as close to God as we want to be. And so if you say, oh, I wish I was so close to God. Well, when's the last time you picked up your Bible? When's the last time you prayed? When's the last time you fasted? What are you doing? How are you training in godliness so that you can be more like Christ and be close to Christ? Verse 10, Paul gives us, given the value of the reward, of striving and training for godliness. Paul urges Timothy to labor and strive in the pursuit of godliness, both for himself and for those he serves. You see, our, our bodies will only last for a few years compared to eternity. You can do your very best to try and take care of your physical body, and that's a good thing to do, so don't take this verse of being, I don't need to worry about physical fitness. No, take care of your temple. God dwells within you and wants to use you while you are here on earth. But... Paul says, the gains from godliness will endure forever and have an even greater reach. You see, in our training in godliness, we are to persevere in these things, Paul mentions. We are to persevere in these things, referring to the commands Paul has already given. Continue becoming more and more like Christ. Continue setting example for others. In our training, we work hard so that others might be saved. You see, we... We don't possess any power within ourselves to save other people. Sometimes I wish we could. Sometimes I wish the students that interact with that I could, I, could, I could spiritually save them, but I can't. You can't. We can't do that. Maybe you have friends, family members that you wish that you could save them by your own power, but you can't. But you know what you can do? What Paul tells us we can do. We can live our lives in such a way that reflects the goodness and the greatness and the kindness of our God. And in doing so, in training for godliness, that will draw people to the Lord. And the Lord will save them. We can't, but we can set an example. We can live for godliness, remembering who we are, remembering that we are part of God's family. And part of God's family, he has rules and things that we are to behave and act. We are the dwelling place of God, and we uphold the truth of God. We are the guardians of God's word. And what are we to be doing? We are to be guarding the truth, living with purity, and training for godliness. So this is why we guard the truth. This is why we live with purity. This is why we train for God. And this is what we do, and we do it all so that people might come to know Christ. After all, that's, that's why we're here. That's the last thing Jesus said to, to us before he left to go back to heaven. Go and make disciples, baptizing them in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and I will be with you wherever you go. Not just go and, and live comfortable lives and know that I'm going to come back for you one day, so y'all just, just sit tight, enjoy the earth while you can, and just, just live a comfortable life and, and know that you're going to heaven one day. No. That's not what he said. We have been given a mission, an assignment to go and tell the world of our God, to tell of his greatness, proclaim who he is and what he has done, and to live our lives in such a way that people might see Jesus 
in us. So we, we use words. We, I, some people say, you know, we don't need to use our words. Just live your life and people will see. No, we, we do both. We, we use our words. We proclaim scripture. We, we actually have to go and share the gospel, share our testimony. But it has to match up with how we live our lives. That godliness. That Christ that overflows within us. That Christ that lives in us. We live our lives in such a way and we share the gospel with people so that people might come to know him as Lord and Savior. So a few things for us to consider tonight as we wrap up, as we looked at who we are and what we are to do. Would an unbeliever visiting our church be convicted that God dwells among us? How we talk to each other, how we act to each with each other, how we interact. They hear that you go to Lone Oak First Baptist Church. Would they turn their heads or would they say, wow, you know, man, that person, they live their life. I, I want to be at that church because if that's what God looks like, I want to have something to do with that. What area of your life do you need to be training harder in for godliness? We all know the shortcomings that we all have in our life. None of us are perfect, but we are to continue training Continue training in godliness to look more and more like Christ. Is your life pointing people towards Christ or away from Christ? I've heard someone say, you may be the only Jesus that people ever see, the only Bible that people read, so what are they seeing, what are they reading in your life? Paul says, by training, by doing these things, not only will we be saved, but also others may come to know Christ. So in your own life, are you pointing people towards Christ or away from Christ? Or maybe you're here tonight or you're watching online and you're not a part of God's family. You, you, you've, had the, you've come up with this idea of you can live your own ways. You've come up with your own rules and how you think you can get to heaven. And I'm here to tell you that you, uh, there's only one way to get to heaven. There's only one way to the Father and it's through Jesus Christ. You can't be a good enough person. Your rules that you think that you have are good. They will fail you time and time again. There's only one way to the Father, and that's through Jesus Christ. We admit that we're sinners, we believe, and we confess Him as Lord. And that confessing as Lord says, God, you're in control. God, you have the right to tell me how to live. Your word, I obey, I submit to. I hold you higher than anything else in this world, and I'm going to live by you. That's you tonight. You're watching online. Love to talk with you. If you're watching online, if you're here in person, you can simply text the word today to 270-398-5005. We'll contact you more about how you can know Jesus Christ as your Savior. If you would stand, and we're going to have a time of, of response. If the Lord is leading you in any way tonight to respond, would you be obedient to what he's called you to do? Some of those things that we've reflected on tonight. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that we can gather in your house. Father, we're thankful that, that we know who we are as believers in Christ. We we are part of your family, your household. And God, because of that, because we are under your roof, God, you have, have given us rules and instructions and ways that we should live. And God, we know that whatever you have for us is good. And so, Father, would you help us to submit to you? God, would you help us to live our lives in such a way that points people to Christ? Father, would you help us as we proclaim and as we teach the truth with authority to also with, with grace and kindness so that other people might come to know you. Father, remind us of who we are. Remind us of what we are to be doing as your church. Father, forgive us where we fail you. Forgive us where we're not a good picture of godliness. Help us to live and embrace godliness because in doing so, we proclaim the gospel 
to a dark world who needs the light of the truth of your son, Jesus Christ. Father, we pray now that you would have your way. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.